Hello again. Welcome to Tell Me. On this episode of Tell Me, I'm talking to Bo Nelson. Bo is a celebrity makeup artist, a photographer. He does a lot of things. Him and his best friend, Shannon Heth, wrote this amazing book during the pandemic. It's called Cinderella, You Bitch. And it's about relationships and how fairy tales that we've been taught and we've seen as children, how they impact our relationships and the norms, the narratives that we think we're supposed to be living by. We had a great conversation about relationships, ego, trauma. I really adore Bo and I find him so easy to talk to and I was happy to meet his best friend, Shannon. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. You hear that? Your dog knows spring is coming sooner than you think. Dog walks, dog parks, playing fetch, all the stuff your dog loves to do with you. But the warmer weather also means that fleas and ticks are coming back. Fleas and ticks are in the grass, in the woods, and even on their dog friends. Fleas are an itchy nuisance, can easily get into your home, furniture, and beds, which can be terrible. Ticks are even worse. They're hard to spot, but can carry disease and get your dog really sick. PetMeds has your furry friend protected with the best products to prevent flea and ticks all year long. PetMeds pharmacists connect directly with your vet to save you time and deliver the best products for your pet. PetMeds offers low prices on all flea and tick meds, including NexGuard, Simperica, and more. And PetMeds AutoShip helps you save even more with additional discounts on regular shipments of PetMeds, dog food, and other high-quality supplies. So get ready for all the spring fun now. Visit PetMeds.com and use promo code PODCAST to save 40% on your first auto ship order. That's PetMeds.com and promo code PODCAST. Shannon! Hi! Hi! You have a bright lip on today, too. I do. <laughs> so I'm here with Bo and Shannon, who wrote a super fun book, Cinderella, You Bitch. Bo is an amazing makeup artist and a photographer and an entrepreneur. And, and Shannon, I'm meeting for the first time, and yeah. you two are best friends. And so I have a confession to make, and he knows. Today, when I was getting ready, normally when you see a makeup artist, like you don't have makeup on, right? Because you're getting ready to get your makeup done. But today, when I was getting ready, I was like, oh, I'm talking to Bo today. I have to make sure my tinted moisturizer is like, like it's on right. Like, I'm, I'm, not that he's a judgy person at all. It's just like we get insecure, which kind of leads into the book. But so I decided on my peachy orange, whatever the color is. And I came down and I was looking at him and I was like, does he hate it? Does he love it? <laughs> <laughs> What's the verdict, Bo? I like it. I'm really into a peach lip. So I'm, I'm 100% for it. So Bo and I are in Los Angeles. Shannon, where are you today? I'm in Vancouver. Okay, you're in Vancouver. So it's the middle of February, and it's 90 degrees this week. Wow. You know, which is a wardrobe conundrum. You know, it's February, but then again, you know, we need summer clothes. It's a whole situation. Is it like the frozen tundra up there, Shannon? No, it's just rainy and gray and foggy all the time. I was there yesterday. You were there yesterday? Yeah. Well, Shannon and I figured we needed to do something to celebrate the book. And she's so great at planning things. Obviously, that's her job. But <laughs> she's like, you got to come celebrate. And I was like, I really don't want to travel right now. But I'm really glad I did because I tend to not celebrate things. I think I even talk about that in the book. But I went up to Vancouver and we had a very small gathering because that's all we're allowed to do right now. And we had a, a really nice time. It was really fun. And a few too many margaritas. <laughs> yeah, I won't tell any of those stories, Shannon. I love a margarita. 
<laughs> so, Bo, you're kind of like me. Like, people have to drag me kicking and screaming to do stuff. I'm kind of like a Scorpio. I want to stay in the house. Yeah. I want to be in a corner, in a dark corner, like an insect. And people drag me out. And then I'm so glad I did it. Yeah. It's like the same thing for me going to the gym or anything. It's like once I get there, I'm fine. But getting there is a whole other thing. The magnet of my bed is very strong. Right. For sure. And Shannon, are you the opposite? Yeah, I think just because of the nature of what I do, like I'm sort of in the job of just making things happen. So I have to do it now. It's just part of my life, whether it's professional or personal. You know, I thought we have to make this happen. So you're coming. We'll figure it out. We're making it happen. (laughs) So did you have to coerce him to really write this book or did both of you really, really want to do it? I'm so impressed when anybody does anything this ambitious during quarantine. Congratulations. Thank you. You know, a lot of people lost their minds. Oh, we did. (laughs) Yeah. It was actually something that we'd been talking about for so many years. And Bo has really been, as many, you know, really good friends are, such a fantastic resource and supporter for me when I was going through certain relationship challenges. And we talked a lot about this narrative that we've sort of been taught and sold and, you know, learned over the course of our lives. And so we joked like, oh, it'd be so great if we could just write a book about it from the perspective of two friends, you know, helping each other. And then both of us, when the pandemic hit, we lost so much of our work and it really felt scary. And I think we both felt a bit lost. And we actually started just by doing like yoga classes together on Zoom. But then we would start talking about like, maybe we should revisit that book again. And then we just sort of slowly started writing it. And then it started to feel good. And it gave us a sense of purpose, I think, when everything felt really purposeless in a lot of ways. And we ended up, you know, two years later, this beautiful book that we were able to take this journey on together. So let me just tell everybody about the book quickly. Cinderella, you bitches. Basically, they touch on a lot of topics in the book. And masculinity is one. And I really want to talk about that. Sort of the premise of the book is based on, you know, these norms that we've all grown up with about fairy tales and what subconsciously or consciously we believe or what standards we hold ourselves or our relationships to based on these fairy tales that have created these norms. They're not norms, really, but what we appear to be or are fed to believe is normal, which makes everybody who isn't that feel not normal. It's a really fun read. So let's just dive in. The chapter that I love so much is the chapter about masculinity Mm. and how we raise our sons. And I guess because I have a five-year-old son, I'm hyper aware of making sure that I don't raise him to think that he has to be this archaic idea of masculinity, like it's okay to cry and all of that stuff. So this is such important work to do right now for anybody raising sons, is to make sure that we are catching all of these moments because they're absolutely everywhere. Yeah, it's really imperative, I think, as a parent to instill those things into children. There's really no guidebook or rule book to do it. And not everyone is catching up at the same time. But I'm interested to see, I mean, I'm 41 years old. This generation that's now out and about and doing their things in their 20s, they're so much freer than I ever was. And I can't even imagine how that's going to translate into, you know, your son's generation. So, I mean, obviously, I grew up in a small Mormon community, which was a really small town called Cardston, Alberta, Canada. It's 20 minutes north of the Montana border. And it is a town of about 3,000, maybe it's 5,000 by now, I don't know. And there's a big Mormon temple right in the middle of it. 
So 95%, 98% of the kids I went to school with were Mormon and everyone I knew was Mormon and everyone went to church every Sunday. And we bordered a native reservation. So like the native kids were not necessarily Mormon. Actually, I don't think any of them were Mormon, but those were my sort of non-Mormon friends were the native kids. And then I had one really, really good friend, my friend Jamie. He was basically the only white person I knew that was not Mormon. And he helped me through a huge time in my life. I mean, it was hard growing up there as a young gay man, not really even knowing necessarily that I was gay because the narratives that you're fed there and everywhere, but there in particular are, you're going to grow up, you're going to go on a mission, you're going to get married, and then you're going to have kids. And I've noticed even now that those narratives are so strong in my mind that I'll be walking somewhere, seeing like a snotty-nosed kid on the subway, and my immediate thought is, my kids are not going to be like that. And I'm like, but wait, I don't even want kids. But it's so ingrained in me that it's like, that's where I go. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. It happened to me just walking down the hallway in my building the other day, and I was like, so weird that that just keeps coming up. Once you start paying attention to your thoughts and your patterns and stuff, you can really start to figure out these beliefs. And it's really hard getting underneath them. But once you do, there's such an opportunity for growth. Do you also think that some of it is a biological component, right? Because we could talk about evolution in our biology. I never wanted kids because of my head and my emotion, right? My childhood was not the most pleasant time for me. So the idea to me of having kids would represent, in my mind, me overthinker. That's not a pleasant place that I want to go back and revisit what it's like to be a kid. But then, I guess, biologically at a certain age, for women now especially, it's happening later and later, and that's why there's a fertility business boom. There is a bit of biology that plays into all of this stuff, I think, which complicates it. But we need the intellectual ideas about gender norms and all of that to sort of override our biology. Let's say if we're going to take super masculine guys, right? Biologically, there's society that has raised them to believe certain things. And then there's the biology. And that goes both ways for women as well. I think we're raised to feel a certain way. We should, you know, look pretty. We should wear high heels. We should not speak too loudly or make sure we we're polite. We should have kids. We should have kids. By a yes. certain age. By a certain age. If you don't, then there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Well, again, biologically, you kind of have to have kids by a certain age. Well, not necessarily these days now, so much. It's so funny because my hairdresser on the show, she was talking about her cousin the other day, and she said her cousin was a grandmother. And I said to her, isn't it so funny? Your cousin in Ohio is 50 years old, and she's a grandmother. Here in L.A., you know, grandmothers are 80 years old. <laughs> Here in New York and L.A. in the big cities, we have kids much later. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. 
Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash rs10 today. I mean, my parents are both quite young. My mom, I think, is 66. Mm-hmm. Shannon, your parents are quite young. Yeah, they're in their mid-70s. I think my mom had my brother when she was in her mid-30s, so a little bit later. I mean, I think for me, I have two kids. I have two boys, nine and seven. And so, you know, I think a lot about raising them to be aware of emotions and to speak about their emotions, to be empathetic. I think empathy is a huge thing that we should be teaching all of our kids, but I think especially boys, you know, to understand someone else's feelings first, though, you have to understand your own, right? And they have to be able to connect to their own feelings to then be able to connect with someone else's. And so I talk about that a lot with my kids. You know, how did that make you feel? Sometimes they don't know, and I don't want to project anything onto them. But, you know, I say, did that make you feel sad? No. Did that make you feel angry? Yeah. Okay, so you feel angry. That's okay. And I think the other thing is, is I always tell my kids, it's okay to feel angry. It's okay to feel sad. It's okay to cry. Let's, you know, make those things okay, because then they'll become more, I hope, empathetic, understanding humans, not just men, but just like humans, which, you know, I think we all need to be so aware of. And I think the other thing, too, about having kids biologically and thinking about that sort of yearning, I didn't have that. I never felt like, you know, like feeling deep inside you. I didn't have it. But I felt like, well, it's something I am sort of supposed to do. I mean, I didn't feel forced into it. But I think there was a part of me that felt like, oh, my mom kind of expects it or wants it for me. Maybe expect is too strong a word, but I think wants it. My ex-husband's family wants it. Like, I think there's a lot of expectation that goes into having kids. I'm very glad. I'm very happy that I have two beautiful, loving, sweet boys. But, you know, I think there was a part of me that fell a bit prey to this idea of expectation. And expectations, you know, we talk about in the book are sort of the root of all heartache in a lot of ways. I couldn't agree with you more across every scope. Expectation in everything, in every conversation that you have, whether it's romantic relationships or friendships, I always say manage your expectations. Bo tells a great story in the book about getting to do makeup on someone that was his absolute idol. And, you know, we could all spend all day (laughs) trying to figure out who that is. I don't know who it is, but, like, I've been thinking about it ever since I read it. He tells this heartbreaking story about being so excited to do this person's makeup. And then he gets there, and he couldn't do anything right. And when you read it, you feel like, I hate that person for hurting his feelings. I mean, he's so talented that you can't even imagine anybody mistreating him or saying they don't like what he's doing. But then he explains brilliantly in the book, it really wasn't about him at all. It was really that person was going through something that day, and he just happened to be the punching bag for that person's emotions. So again, go back to expectations. I love when people say they don't want to meet their idols. It's always like such a brilliant thing to say. Like, you should want to meet your idols because your expectations are going to be so high and they just might not be met. So I think it's such a valuable lesson in life and in romantic relationships that your expectations of what you think this relationship might be, what you think this person should be giving you, should be doing for you, how he or she should be looking at you. Managing expectations is a real goal for me in life. Well, and also communicating expectations. 
Because an expectation that isn't communicated has no way of being fulfilled. If there's a certain way you would like to be treated, the least you can do is ask for that. Because the person may not understand where your expectations are coming from. They don't know how you grew up or what triggers you or whatever. In relationship, we're not often going back and talking about what happened in our past or really communicating these things that are triggering for us so that our partner can understand, oh, okay, get it. When I do this, it triggers you in this way. Shannon and I, in the book, we talk about ways to language this to your partner. And it's really great to say, when this happens, my experience of it is this. Because it takes it away from like, when you do this, it makes me feel like that. It's no, when this event occurred, I felt this. This is my experience. I'm owning my experience of it. What was your experience? Let's have a discussion and open up that dialogue. And I think when you don't go into a situation, you attack the other person, it's so much more liberating for them to be able to express their experience. And I think language is such a powerful thing. I mean, we talk about it all throughout the book. You know, they call it spelling. And it's called spelling for a reason. It's like we're literally casting spells with our words. So paying attention to how you think verbally in your mind, how you speak to people, how you language things is really important because it really sets the stage for your entire life and all of your experiences. It's so true. Also, emotional regulation. I'm sort of big on that one right now in particular. The ability to regulate our emotions before you choose your language, mm. right? So there's steps, I think. And first is if someone says something that activates you. I interviewed Charlemagne a couple of weeks ago and I said triggered. And he said, don't say triggered, say activate. And I love that. So now I say activate. Thanks, Charlemagne. So it's when someone says something that activates something in you to just take a moment, like you say in the book, think about why that bothers you, why they may have said it, because intention is another big thing. Just take a deep breath and don't respond immediately from a place of emotion. Because if you cannot regulate your emotion, you're for sure going to say something that's going to escalate the situation instead of de-escalate it and lead to a place of just total chaos and not on a path to understanding or empathy. Well, feelings yeah. aren't facts. We say that in the book. Feelings are not facts. It's your experience. doesn't necessarily mean that anyone else around you agrees with it. You're entitled to your own experience, but it might not align with other people's. And I think, too, it's important to be okay with pressing pause. Like, that was a big thing that I learned when I was going through some difficult times in my marriage was we don't actually have to have it out right now. Like, it's okay to just say, hey, can we just, like, press pause on this and come back to it? The thing is, and we talk about this, too, is, like, if you're the person that wants to press pause, you also then have to be the person that has the bravery to then say, okay, action again. Now we have to go back to it. And you can press pause, you know, maybe 10 minutes, 20 minutes. But if you're going to press pause, then you also have to make sure you're ready to go back in. But I think taking that time to have that, as you say, Ellen, to get back into where is this coming from for me? How am I feeling so that I can speak to it in a more authentic and loving way versus in an activated, you know, aggravated way? It's more opportunity for growth. And I think, you know, we talk about in the book too, that everyone says, oh, relationships are a lot of work. And I think that's such a poor place to frame like a loving relationship. I mean, work just sounds so heavy. I think if we look at relationships as opportunities for growth, relationships are about growth and not work, then I think we're starting to see a real shift in how we can actually be with another person. Mm -hmm. In the book, we never say take responsibility because 
when you say take responsibility, it's outside of you. We literally were very intentional about the language saying being responsible because it's a way of being, you know, and all the transformational work that I did that sort of inspired this book. And I had two really amazing teachers, Lynn and Lisa. The book is actually dedicated to them. They talk a lot about ways of being. And it's like, how am I being in any given moment is a great question to ask yourself. You know, if you're in an argument, how am I being right now? Am I being loving? Am I being open? Am I being honest? Or am I being closed off, angry, frustrated? And once you have a sense of how you're being, you can choose another way of being to switch into. And that, for me, has changed so many things. Because, like, I'm an introvert. You know, we talk about this a little bit. I generally, you know, on set will just do my thing. I kind of hang out. I'm quiet. I'm there to work. It's fine. Which I think is like partially why people like me for this job sometimes. But then there's times where I'm probably too far removed from everything. And I'm just watching. And sometimes I'll catch myself and I'll be like, how am I being in this? And I do it as a game almost. How am I being in this moment? Oh, I'm being reserved. I'm being quiet. I'm not being that approachable. Okay, well, how can I shift that way of being? And then I start to like open up and I'll force myself to go like introduce myself to all the crew or like talk to somebody about something. And always whenever I do that, which I don't do enough, but every time that I do do that, I find somebody really cool to talk to or usually somebody has like a great book that they just wanted to tell me about that they just read that I end up reading that I love or, oh, there's this great place that you should try to eat or like, hey, have you ever been to like, and there's been some weird coincidences too where there were things that I've been researching and thinking about and thinking about and thinking about and then I'll ask one question to somebody and they have exactly the answer that I need right there. And so it's kind of like when you open yourself up to a new way of being, you open yourself up to breaking a pattern and you open yourself up to a whole new configuration of reality in a way because it allows all these new possibilities for you. And in the book, you say, how am I being in this situation? And people are maybe perceiving me completely wrong. And that, again, goes back to Shannon's point of empathy. Don't assume things because someone is more quiet and not talking. Don't make assumptions on them. I don't know if this is your experience, Shannon, but when you are a woman and you're outspoken and you do show up on set and you start asking questions and introducing yourself and want to know why are we doing this and how is this going to work and all of that, back to gender norms, men are expected to show up on set and behave that way and that's perfectly acceptable. When women show up and act that way, it's perceived as bossy, you know, bitchy, It's perceived in a completely different way because of the Cinderella stories and the gender norms that we've been taught, even by other women. It's not just that men will think that. In Mm -hmm. my experience, it's other women completely put judgments on me for how I'm behaving, whether that's because it's intimidating for them that they can't speak up for themselves. Mm -hmm. But again, these gender norms that you speak about in the book really lie across the whole entire board of existence, you know, not just relationships, but we can really apply them to every situation. I guess my point is, in Cinderella, you bitch, a lot of the themes that you both are applying to relationships, I found ways to apply them to other situations in my life Mm -hmm. that are very helpful. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. 
That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Well, we kind of say that this book is sort of a relationship book in sheep's clothing in a way. Like, it definitely <laughs> is about relationships, but it's sort of a book in two parts. And the first part is about your relationship with yourself and also your relationship with your beliefs, your patterns, and the fairy tales that we've been sort of taught. And we talk about the history of fairy tales a little bit and actually how dark they actually really were. It's kind of shocking, actually, when you do the research and you start to figure these things out. And so the source material for all these things that we think are so wholesome and beautiful was not really the case and actually still isn't really when you start to look at things like, oh, there's a sleeping woman. I should just kiss her. That's a whole thing. I mean, that's a whole book right there. But the second part of the book, our book, is about your relationship with yourself when you're in relationship with another, which I think is sort of a different spin because usually it's like all about the other person. This is about how you are in relationship, which is being responsible and taking a look at how the things that have happened to you or what you picked up or how your parents were or weren't or whatever, whatever you made up about it, which is another great question to ask yourself. What am I making up about this right now? What stories am I telling myself that just simply are not true? Yeah. Maybe they're true for you, but just to be aware of them is, what am I making up about this? Like, you know, when I had that incident or whatever with that person, it was very easy for me to be like, oh, I'm not good enough. I must be really bad at this. I can't believe this is happening to me. It was an awful, awful fucking moment <laughs> for like 20 minutes. And then I just, then I was just mad. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and I was like, I'll let this crazy asshole ruin my, like, I have much more evidence that I am actually, in fact, very good at my job. And it's so funny because once something triggers us or activates us, it's really easy to look for that evidence that's going to prove the old story that we have, the underlying story, I'm not enough, I'm not good enough. That's what we'll focus on immediately. But then you take a moment and say, well, is that true? Is that actually true? We talk about that in the book as well. And that's from Byron Katie. Yes, that's from Byron Katie. You know, she has the questions. But 
and now I've lost my train of thought completely. That's great. See, you're like me. Are you sure you're not 50? Because uh, that's what happens when you turn 50. You walk in a room and you don't know why the fuck you're in the room. I'm like, what am I doing in here? What's my name? I felt like I was really on something there and then it's just gone. <laughs> the core of it is kind of about self-awareness. And it's so funny how people can rock our confidence regardless of how skilled you are, how much experience you have how many big, famous, beautiful people you've worked on, that confrontation still rocked your confidence even for 20 minutes. You know, what I made up was that this person's opinion was way more important than everyone else's for whatever reason. Right. And that it was more important than my own opinion. You know, I made up a lot of stuff, like, and, and like that, like in seconds, not even. And I think there's a neurological component to these things as well when we are activated. Like our reptilian brain, they say, like comes into play and it's like sort of a fight or flight response. And mm-hmm. I'm not a neuroscientist and we didn't do a lot of neuroscience research for the book, but I know that there are a lot of components that come into play and like your brain activates and you're not able to think cognitively the way that you normally would. So it is important, as you said earlier, to take that space and sort of make the time to create the space for you to explore your emotions and your feelings and your thoughts and and how you want to communicate them. Well, and I think, too, like you were saying, Ellen, about, you know, when you walk into a room as a woman, I make up stuff all the time. You know, I'm 5'11", I'm blonde. Immediately, before anyone even says anything, I walk into a room sometimes and think, oh, my God. Everyone here is, you know, going to judge me or or have a thought about me because of the way I look or maybe because, you know, I walk into a room and I want to own a conversation. Maybe they'll think I'm too much. And those are all things that I'm making up and then I'm projecting. And I think it also comes back to not making those things up about yourself because you actually don't know what the other person is thinking. Maybe the other person's just having a bad day. Like, you just don't know. But I think immediately because we go back to this place of... And it's very easy to, I think, try to either think you're a victim or play a victim. If you can let go of that and just be who you are, and if people have a problem with that, you know, it's not your responsibility. You're not responsible for other people's problems with you. But if you can know and trust and love yourself, then I think you're much better suited to walk into a room and be who you are and and own it. And I think that, you know, other people having a problem with that, it's not my responsibility to be worried about those people. I can be empathetic. I can be understanding. I can be compassionate. But I still am going to be who I am. Yeah, it's not your problem. Exactly. You're not everybody's cup of tea. That's okay, too. Which is really tough. It's really hard, but it's easier at 50. Oh, well, that's good to know. (laughs) I'm a big advocate for 50, as you can see. I keep mentioning it's true. Certain things that happen, and I was never this way before. It took me a long time to get to this place where I'm not for everybody, and that's okay. Yeah, and I think, you know, my job and Bo's job too, but I think for my career, particularly like I work in PR, my job is to make people likable. That's part of what I do. And then I think sometimes that bleeds into my own way of being. Like every day I think about how do I make a brand more likable? How do I make a spokesperson more likable? And I think sometimes I think, how do I make myself more likable? It doesn't matter. I just have to be who I am. But it's really tough because I think it's so much a part of what we learn. And especially as women, how can you be nicer? How can you be more likable? You should smile more. It's really tough to let go of those things. For sure. I just wanted to go back to what you said before just for one second because it activated me in a way that I really, really want to make this point. So obviously I'm a gay man in LA. Everyone here has like an amazing body and a perfect smile and this and that and whatever. And sometimes it's really easy to like 
look from the outside in, and I'm sure this happens for everybody, but we walk past the groups of guys, beautiful guys with their brunch tables, like 12 guys. And I don't have like a big group of friends like that. I have a lot of individual friends and I tend to spend time with individuals and they're not necessarily related to each other. So it's hard to bring them together in a group unless it's like my birthday or something like that. And I look from the outside in and I'm like, oh, maybe if I were more palatable, like maybe if I were more like basic or whatever things I have to make up to make myself feel slightly superior. Because, you know, I have to feel better because that not makes me different. So then it's okay that I'm different. But then I'd be like, well, maybe more people would be into me if I were this way or that way. And then the thing that finally clicked for me one day was like, I'm not for everyone, but everyone's not for me either. Like, I actually have a choice in this. Because if I actually sat at that brunch table, I'd be rolling my eyes so far in the back of my head, I would probably pass out. <laughs> and I wouldn't, you know, like, and I wouldn't want to be around some of those people sometimes. I mean, maybe if I sat at that table and was open and had a great way of being, I'd find a great connection too. I don't know. But certainly not everyone is for me. But for sure, I'm not for everyone either. It's both ways, you know? <laughs> Right. We all have whatever it is inside of us, little seeds of doubt on different days. I'm sure on some days you feel 100% of what you really are. Yeah, sometimes I get lucky. I mean, it's been a while. <laughs> I mean, this <laughs> pandemic has really done a lot of stuff. But yeah, no, when I'm feeling myself, it's nice. But for me to feel myself, it takes a very active consistent practice of a lot of things at the same time. Like physically, I need to be taking care of my body and eating properly. And it's not necessarily just for the way that I look. It's also the way that I feel. The best thing that I do is to try to acknowledge my accomplishments, which I had to really learn. When I was doing the transformational work that I do, it's done in a group setting. And there's a lot of opportunity for feedback from people. And they tell you really honest things. It's a safe space for people to express their experience of you and what their experience may have been at the beginning and then at the end. And, you know, there's a lot of really beautiful, vulnerable conversations that happen in this room. And you hear things that you might not really want to hear, but you hear things that you might need to hear. And for me, I got a lot of feedback. For me, guilt feels like a stab downwards through the heart, like, oof. But this was a new sensation. When somebody would give me heartfelt feedback from their heart to my face, I would feel my body curve, like my spine is curving right now and I'm backing away from the microphone. And I would feel my body shutting down to try to avoid letting their comments land. And I started to look at that and I was like, oh, and the trainer would come up and she'd push my back out and she'd pull my shoulders back and I'd open my hands and I'd stare them right in the eye and I had to like really take that feedback in. And it felt like a meat hook going up through my heart. It was like physically an uncomfortable, I wouldn't say painful, but physically uncomfortable sensation. And I was like, wow, if these people are trying to acknowledge me in a really real way, in a very vulnerable way, and we've had all these incredible experiences together, and I'm having this much of a problem accepting a compliment, a heartfelt compliment that's really, you know, talking about the core of who I am for them, then what am I doing to myself? Like, I'm not acknowledging my accomplishments. I'm just going from one thing to the next and being like, okay, I did that, and now I'm going to do this other thing. And I still do that. It's probably why I wasn't super great, like anxious to get on the plane and go celebrate the book launch. It's not something that I'm used to doing, and I have this old way of being that comes into play. But in the book, I talk about every day, no matter what I've done, I try to, at the end of the day, just take like three or four minutes and be like, oh, okay, like I got this done today and I felt really good about that. And I said something nice to this person or I did something nice or I made a beautiful cake or whatever it is that I've done during that day. And I try to acknowledge myself for it and actually be present with it and then breathe it in 
and let it sit in my heart for a second and then breathe it out. It doesn't have to be for long. But I think this is the way to build self-esteem, is to acknowledge yourself. And so I told my brothers, my brothers have kids, so I have three nieces. And I said, you know, guys, like if I were a parent, which obviously I'm not, but I would take a moment with my kids every day and talk to them about what did they do during the day and how did that make them feel? It's not so much about what you did. It's about how you feel about what you did. And I would just want my kids to tell me, like, what was your favorite part of the day and why was it your favorite part? How did that make you feel? Aren't you proud of yourself? Or how does that make you feel about you? And I think these little things, especially when they're children between two and eight, I mean, that's where they soak up everything. It's where all the beliefs come from. So if you can start instilling these things, I mean, I think it would just change the whole world. That's a great suggestion. We do like Rose and Thorn at dinner every night. You know, we ask the kids, what's your favorite part of the day and your worst part of the day? And what are you grateful for? But that's another little piece to it that how did that make you feel? Shannon, do you do anything like that with your kids? Yeah, we call them pricklies and squishies. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, what was your prickly? What was your squishy? And we do talk about feeling. I think the other thing that I've really noticed, and actually it's coming from a kindergarten teacher at the school that both my kids go to, and they both had the same kindergarten teacher, Miss Byan. She's amazing, incredible, beautiful woman, wears the most fantastic outfits every day. I mean, I wish I could have her closet. She's just the most incredible, soulful person. And she taught both my kids yoga and mindfulness. And I actually had a bit of a rough moment a few weeks ago where I had the kids for a bit more. I split them 50-50 with my ex, but I'd had them for a more of an extended period of time. And I just sort of snapped. It was a long week. I got upset. I lost my temper. I felt horrible. I went upstairs and I just burst into tears. And I was so caught up in this belief that I was a horrible mother for having lost my temper. I was on the floor. I was crying. I was crying to the point where I was like almost hyperventilating. I was just really having a bad moment, which, as you know, when you have kids, you try to shield them from those things as much as you can. But my nine-year-old came upstairs and he saw me crying on the floor. (laughs) The poor thing, the first thing he said was, Mom, are you dying? And I said, no, no, I'm not dying. I'm just really upset. I'm so upset that I lost my temper. And and I feel like I'm a horrible mother. And, you know, I wasn't trying to put all this weight on him, but it was just sort of coming out of me. And, you know, the first thing he said to me, he said, Mom, it's okay. Let's just do some mindful breathing. And he took my hands and he said, we're going to breathe in and we're going to breathe out. We're going to breathe in and we're going to breathe out. And it was the most incredible moment because for him to have that tool at his age To be able to help me, you know, it gives me a lot of hope for what he'll be able to do when he gets older. Yeah, it's fun when you put the information in and then it gets spit back out at you. You're like, oh, it's incredible. Yeah, it's like, oh, it's landed. (laughs) I think it's sprinkled throughout the book about self-esteem and how to take those moments. I am one who's terrible at getting compliments. I feel really good about myself when I feel like my mother game is on point. I feel like, oh, that I can congratulate myself for. But it's much harder for me to accept a compliment and go to a positive place than it is focus on something negative. Well, here's some tips then, I guess, that I try to handle (laughs) when I'm trying to take a compliment. I try to sit up straight, shoulders back, chest out, heart open, and I literally put my hands in a receptive position. My hands are out to my side and palms facing forward. And I try to look into their eyes while they're giving me the compliment, breathe it in, and then thank them for it and just allow it to wash over me. 
It is very uncomfortable at times. Very, very, very uncomfortable at times. And you're probably going to look like a weirdo doing it. But you know what? It really does make a difference. It really, really does. Because you're allowing your neurology, your physiology to take on this compliment. And I do believe, like, I don't know what the chemical reaction in your body is, but it changes. You know, we have instincts. So if we're trying to protect ourselves, we're going to go into a ball. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to protect myself from your compliment. How does that work? We don't have this in the book, and it's something I actually regret not putting in the book, but there's this concept of humility that's been sold to us. You should be humble. And we're told that all the time. And I do get the distinction between being a pompous asshole and being, quote-unquote, humble. However, (laughs) humility for me is a bullshit concept. And the reason for that is because it does not allow you to own your gifts. And I feel that maybe the church had something to do with this because, and this is just my belief, but that if you decide to view yourself as an aspect of God experiencing yourself on this planet or that you came from God or whatever it is that you want to believe, well, your powers here, your powers of creation, whatever you create, whatever art you make, all of those things, that is literally like the power of God. And if you can't acknowledge your own powers, if you can't feel good in them and stand strong in them, then you're being humble, I guess, but you're not owning your godliness. And how fucked up is that? Like God gave you these powers or God gave you this creativity, God gave you this life or however you want to look at it. But you're not owning these things. You're not proud of yourself. You're not honing these skills that you were given. You're not pursuing your passions. You're not doing anything that you enjoy. Like, And you don't have to be good at what you enjoy, but most of us are good at the things we enjoy. So we might as well acknowledge ourselves. So I don't like when people say that they're humble because they're usually following it up with something that they did anyway. They're like, I'm so humbled by all the attention I got for this thing that I did. (laughs) It's like, why don't you just say, I'm really proud of myself. I worked really hard. Yeah. Right. That was amazing what you just said, a concept that I've never even heard anybody else talk about. So then talk to me about ego. I think, you know, ego is quite damaging and destructive when our ego gets out of control. So there's a real balance that you have to strike between humility, ego, because ego is like a really dirty word because it makes everybody assholes. Well, Mm. I think the opposite of humility is, you know, when people are constantly bragging about themselves or talking about their mansion or whatever it is that they're trying to project, they're actually covering up for an insecurity. And I think that real humility is quiet power in what you have. You don't have to say it. You don't have to do anything about it. You just have it. So, like, you can walk on a set and you can be the nicest person, you can be kind, you can be wonderful, but you're still standing strong in what you're offering to that set and how you're contributing to the team and what art you're creating and what ideas you have. There's nothing wrong with that. You can be completely lovely and respectable and well-mannered and well-liked and still be humble, which, again, I don't like that word, but you can be quietly powerful in your own strength. I think that ego is such a tough thing. I mean, Eckhart Tolle, who said this, but like your ego loves a victim, right? Your ego tries to play into you that, oh, I can't believe this thing is happening to me. I can't believe this went wrong. You know, your ego feeds off of playing a victim. Cinderella was like a perfect example of just like constantly playing a victim. And I think if you can move past that, you become very powerful. But I think you have to be aware of what your ego tells you, because it's telling you things all the time. And you don't even recognize it because it's just the way that you live day in and day out. You're, you know, constantly having these conversations in your mind. And a lot of those thoughts that you're having are negative thoughts. 
And once you start to peel that back and start to recognize and get behind the thought, and I think that's something that, you know, I've really tried to do and tried to learn getting behind the thoughts that you're having, like the thought that you're having is not who you are, but you're sort of caught up in this idea that it is. Yeah, the consciousness is a whole different. I was listening to Kara Swisher has this amazing podcast and she had this woman on and they were talking about consciousness and how like the tech world is trying to sort of capture consciousness. I didn't know what they were talking about. Honestly, I was like, whoa, like this was too much for me. But anyway, this was super fun. Cinderella, you bitch. There's so many good themes in this book about self-esteem, about stories that you tell yourself, why you believe those stories. There's so many good little gems in this book. You know, it's so funny. So Bo's a makeup artist, as we've mentioned, and he invented this amazing makeup applicator. And so the makeup applicator looks like a head of a penis. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> Absolutely does. Like, there's just no two ways about it. Like, Some people say it looks like a squid. I'll say squid. Okay, it could look like a squid, yes. So, Bo gifted me one, and it was sitting on the kitchen counter, and my daughter picked it up. Her face was like, Mom, like, what is this? And I was like, it's a makeup applicator. And she was like, really? Why is it shaped like this? And I was like, I, you will have to ask Bo. I cannot answer that question for you. And then yesterday, she saw a TikTok. Yes, Michaela, probably. In whatever it's made from, this— The material is called Ultra Flesh. Ultra Flesh. Mm-hmm. So, again, uh, <laughs> this TikTok and this chick was just wiggling this makeup applicator back and forth. And it's really funny. But I have to say, it's an amazing makeup applicator. It works. I mean, it is ergonomically designed to fit in your hand and to be applied a certain way when you know how to use it. And yeah, it feels a little bit funny, for sure. It might be a familiar sensation to you. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But it really does work. And it saves you, like, you know, you don't have to buy a new sponge every month or every three months or whatever. This thing will last you for at least a year, if not longer. And it saves you, like, literally 50 to 60% of your makeup. Like, you use 50 to 60% less to get the same coverage you were getting before. Because the thing about this applicator is it doesn't absorb any of the makeup. Right. It just puts it on. Yeah, it just puts it on, and so you need, like, a quarter of what you normally do. And it's great, and it's really hilarious, so... I'm sure I would have loved to see her face. You have to come (laughs) over again. You guys have to have a conversation. What's the name of the applicator again? The company is called Leia, and it is the Ultra Flesh Makeup Applicator. It's really amazing. It is hilarious, but it really is a great product. Like, everything Bo does is perfection. And Shannon, I'm really happy to meet you today because he talks so much about you. And we were so excited about doing this together. And I'm glad that you could be a part of it. Thanks for making time for this. It's been so much fun. So thank you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. 